I guess without further ado, I will let these two have it. This is Emily Botine, who is the Vice President of On-Demand Content for WNYC. You hear her name at, in the credits of a lot of podcasts. Um, and this is Katie Bishop, producer for Death, Sex, and Money. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Um, so wel welcome to Bitching Pitching Third Coast Annual Session that puts a microscope on the very mysterious process of how you actually pitch a show. I am Emily. And I'm Katie. Thank you all so much for being here. And before we get to the individual pitches, we do want to quickly hand it over to Nigeri Eaton from NPR. She's going to tell us a little bit about their Story Lab program. Hi, everyone. Um, this is a really great event. I was here yesterday, so I'm so excited to be here again. My name is Nigeri Eaton. I'm the Senior Manager of Programming Acquisitions at NPR. And I want to quickly tell you about Story Lab, which is an expansion of Story Lab that was created in 2015. We're essentially members from the news department, programming, NPR one, and training have gathered together to create an idea hub to generate uh, new segments for news magazines, new radio shows, new podcasts. We're looking at things internally at NPR, uh, at stations, and with independent producers like yourselves. We created a new story portal, uh, a portal where you can pitch your podcast ideas, radio show ideas, and the like here. Um, so if you see these uh, postcards in the back or at our table, please grab one. Um, Please like bombard me with your ideas for pitches. People keep asking me like, "Will you pay us?" And that says so much to me as uh, freelancers. Yes, we will pay you. So please uh, come and talk to me. And if you don't talk to me here, email me at neaton@npr.org. And without further ado, here's some bitchin' pitches. Oh wait, one more thing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I also want to introduce my colleague, uh, Matthew Ozog, who's here from All Things Considered, who's also look, looking to talk to independent producers about working with All Things Considered. So, there. Awesome. Thank you, Nigeri. So, this session has been around for a long, long time, and it's supported by AIR. Everyone put their hands together for AIR. Woo! And we want to say a big thank you to their executive director, Sue Shard, for all of her guidance, and also to Karen Lally for all of her support as we were putting this panel together. And of course, we want to give a big shout out to all of the AIR New Voices scholars who are here in the audience today. So thanks for coming and hope you learned something today. We have three brave pitchers who you will meet soon, and they are going to be sharing their ideas live before three brave editors. Yes. And we want to welcome them today. We have Stephanie Fu, producer from This American Life. We have Tim Howard, the executive producer of Reply All. And we have Sam Greenspan, who is the managing producer for 99% Invisible. And we're going to learn a little bit more about them later. Um, and before we sort of create this very unrealistic uh, way to pitch a piece. Not many of you presumably have people arriving at your offices uh, to give you stories. We wanted to hear from all of you a little bit about how much outside content you do take on your shows. Yeah, so Stephanie, why don't we just start with you? You know, over the course of maybe like 10 This American Life episodes, do you know like about how much would be sourced from outside producers, people who don't work every day at This American Life? It's really hard to say because it uh, really differ. Sometimes there's, you know, a couple of stories in an episode. Sometimes, like last week, it was almost entirely uh, just our staff. Um, but we welcome as many uh, pitches from outside contributors as possible. We can only do so much, and we love help. Tim? So we... Oh, there's a boominess. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, it's genuinely really cool. Um, 
let's see. I think that we we're trying to like figure out the right stride because in the past we've done a thing where we were maybe working like when we work on a story with an outside person sometimes often they're very big difficult stories uh the kinds of stories that if we ourselves were producing as well they would also break us and that's a little difficult when you're establishing a new relationship with somebody so now we try to usually just have about if it's a big story one at a time with an outside person and then if they're smaller stories they're um, like I, one thing that we've done is this thing called 10 minutes on Craigslist and we, we, we don't do a lot of those, but like we're more likely to do one of those. Um, so I, I'm trying, I was, I was thinking about this as I walked in and I, I feel like we've done since I've been there in last, I started at, I think like last March or April, I think we've done like seven stories with outside people, which is not an absurdly high number. And we would like more pitches. Cool. Um, we've gone through phases at 99% Invisible where we have done more internal and then more external. But um, we've, done, we've done fewer uh, freelance stories in the last year and a half, maybe. And I think the reason is because we're just not getting pitches, to be honest. Um, my working theory is everyone has jobs now. Um, <laughs> so yay jobs, um, and I get it. Um, but we, yeah, we freelancers help make our shows make our show great. We get um, really um, a lot of this, the stories that tend to work well for us are ones that um, could be about anywhere. Like they're things in the urban fabric or whatever that are not not exclusively, but that you can kind of report from anywhere. And so it's good to get a perspective of across the country, across the world of of those stories. So. Um, so yeah, we, we're, we're, we're open for business. And the, the pitches that you do take from the outside, um, when they do turn into shows, like what's the shortest amount of time it might take to turn that around, and what's the longest it's ever taken you guys with an outside contributor, <sighs> if you can remember? I think Alex Goldman may hold the record for the longest, I think it was like a year and a half <laughs> of making Hey Yoon. Was it? Yes. Oh yeah, okay, Dan, <laughs> Daniel Gross wins two audience? years. Okay. That was on us though. Uh, you should hire him, he's good. What? Okay, okay, so yeah, so two years is the outset. Uh, shortest time, uh, six weeks, five, five, six weeks? Yeah. Um, I think the longest, I mean, sometimes we have things that are sort of, um, I mean, our producers aren't working actively on it for the entire time, but I'm uh, from the pitch to actually airing to probably like a year and a half for like one piece I did with Shankar. And then um, we almost aired something from James Spring this week that would have been a turnaround of about a day and a half. So, wow. that's amazing. Um, <laughs> we we've done uh, just like a traditional kind of story, as opposed to like the ten minutes on Craigslist, which is a non-narrated. Wait, can you say what the ten minutes on Craigslist yeah. means? It's a non-narrated. Um, it's basically like. The reporter finds a Craigslist ad that raises some sort of question for them, or it doesn't even raise a question, but they talk to the person. The person is just so weird and so delightful that they want to go meet the person. And then, ideally, the conversation will turn into something. It becomes about something else um, in some way, or there's an emotional quality to it that you might not expect from a Craigslist ad. Um, those we have, we turned one around in probably five days. Which was, which was great. Um, the reporter did the interview over the weekend and we edited it in like two days. But normally, for the stories we usually do, um, 
they're going to be a few months. The shortest was probably about two months for this story called The Takeover. I assume it was two months because it was small and delightful and we didn't really need extra voices. And then we've taken as long as probably six months for a story about tulpas. Um, but when we take that long, it's kind of like what Stephanie was saying. We're not necessarily, we're working on different things at once. And, you know, for our own stories, we might end up taking a year now and then on something, but we try to be merciful to the, the reporter. And so we might like put it aside for a couple of weeks while we crash on something hard and then we'll come back to them and assure them that we don't hate them, that we're just, you know, busy dying on something else. Busy. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Each of our pitchers has up to eight minutes to present their pitch to their editor. Uh, we give them a timer, a warning at six minutes, then they have to wrap it up within the next two minutes. After that, the pitcher and the editor will talk about uh, what they heard, uh, and you know, any other judges can chime in too uh, about different uh, pitches. We'll probably have time for one question from the audience of per each pitch, and then at the end, we'll try to have a couple, uh, couple more questions. So obviously, this is a high-stakes event, uh, and you know our editors might be nervous, but our pitchers are feeling particularly nervous, so please join me in giving them a very oh warm welcome. Come on down. Rachel. Rachel Aronoff. Come on down. Julia Katie, who are we starting with? All right. <laughs> We're going to start with Rachel. Rachel, come on up. Oh, oh. Okay. Okay. So Rachel's going to get plugged in. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She has previously worked for WBUR's Here and Now. She currently produces a podcast for Masterpiece on PBS, which is out of WGBH in Boston. And she's originally from Tucson, and she still doesn't understand winter. <laughs> Rachel, will be, uh, pitch, Rachel will be pitching to Stephanie Fu, who's a producer at This American Life. Before joining This American Life in 2014, Stephanie helped create Snap Judgment, uh, and her work has been seen, uh, heard on shows like Reply All, 99% Invisible, and she was just saying... She has pitched to both of those shows, so, yep. Uh, okay, so we'll give you a six-minute <laughs> We'll warning. talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> Does that mean I'm... It's my turn? Okay. So... I'm just going to dive right into the thesis of the piece, which is that this is a love story. It's about two people who were brought together by the same thing that threatens to tear them apart. I consider this my home. All of my family is here. My mom is here. My dad, like everybody. That's Javi. He's one of the main voices in the piece. I got some pretty crackly phone tape from him, so if you couldn't understand what he said, he said in a nutshell, uh, I consider this my home, all of my family is here. Javi is an undocumented immigrant who's at risk of being deported for a crime he committed four years ago. He belongs to this group of undocumented immigrants who don't really remember the countries that supposedly define them. In fact, Javi has been living in the United States since his mom brought him across the border when he was only nine months old. Because of that, he doesn't remember Mexico, he doesn't know Mexico. All he knows is this sunny desert landscape of Tucson, Arizona, where he was brought up. Um, 
And though at the time that I spoke with Javi, the election hadn't yet happened, and what seems like kind of a cruel twist of fate, uh, not one week after Donald Trump's inauguration, uh, January 27th, Javi's judge will decide whether or not he can stay in the United States. If he gets deported, he'll have to say goodbye to, like he said, his family, his friends, but he'll also have to say goodbye to his girlfriend, Gabby. I'll be getting heartbroken. Cause, like I never felt this way about anybody else before. Gabby and Javi met two years ago at that Eloy detention center where Javi was being held. Gabby was 22, a college senior, and a Texan by birth. And when I say Texan, I mean Texan. Gabby's family isn't this cute little blue blip in a Red Sea kind of Texan. They are the Christian Republican, anti-immigration, gun-toting kind of Texan. Yeah. But then the really interesting thing about Gabby's family is that half of her family is also Mexican. Yeah, in fact, Gabby's own grandma herself was a Mexican who came across the border and, as Gabby put it, went on to marry a racist gringo who was Gabby's grandfather. Uh, Gabby's family themselves refused to acknowledge their Mexican heritage, but Gabby didn't want to. She was tanner than most of the people in her class that she went to school with, and she didn't try to deny that. Instead, she eventually went to college to learn Spanish, and she studied Latin American and Mexican history. Eventually, she moved to Tucson, Arizona to spend part of her senior year volunteering for local immigrant advocacy groups, including the Eloy Detention Center where Javi was being held. The first time Gabby and Javi met, they hit it off right away. But I already felt like the butterflies, like, you know, just like, like, oh, he's like cute and stuff, like, I, which is something I didn't even expect. And I like checked myself. I was like, whoa, Gabby, this is not the reason why you came to do all of this. <laughs> Gabby's desire to help undocumented immigrants and to learn more about her own heritage brought her and Javi together. But as she explained to me, it was her love of Javi and Javi's love of her that kept her returning to the center to visit him. Though I also think it was this weird identity-finding journey that she was on that was partially to blame, and I'll get to that a little more later on. But that's not to say that I doubt that her and Javi love each, her and Javi love each other, because they both told me that after that first meeting, they were completely smitten. In fact, Javi went back to his cell to write her a letter right away, and even though Gabby didn't yet have enough money to buy a car, she found a way to make that hour-long journey up to Eloy to visit him every weekend for three months. And during those three months, Gabby and Javi, they got to know one another really intimately through their weekend visits, through letters, and over the phone. Their relationship quickly grew into a romantic one. And then one day, Gabby decided to use the money that she'd been saving up to buy a car to get Javi out on bond. First thing I did, like, as soon as I got out, I got on the mama's phone. I called Gabby, and I thanked her so much. Not two weeks before they had met, Javi was really, really, really close to taking a voluntary departure, which is essentially where you choose to de deport yourself. He had been at Eloy for nine months when Gabby and him met, and none of his family or friends had visited. He was really depressed, he was tired of fighting, but then Gabby came along, she got him out of Eloy, and she gave him the support he needed. But that's not to say that their relationship has been easy. Though Gabby no longer has to figure out how to get up to Eloy on the weekends, the stress of keeping their relationship secret from her family, which I said are anti-immigration, 
Christian Republicans and of regular court hearings. Also the stress of really hoping for the best but just needing to talk about what would happen to them if Javi got deported has taken a toll on them. In spite of their hardships though, after two years of being together and talking about these possibilities, it's hard for them to imagine what would happen if Javi got deported. If on January 27th, the judge rules for Javi to be deported, what would that mean for them? What would that mean for their relationship? But more importantly, what would that mean for Javi's future? Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at this person with like a black rope and a hammer begging. I'm like, like please read my thoughts. Like, please let me stay, you know, like, my life is in his hands. But Javi's life isn't just in the hands of the judge, as he said, but it's also in the, the very tiny hands of Donald Trump. Two minutes. And, and, and Javi recognizes that. A lot of Javi's family voted for Trump, which hurt Javi deeply. As Javi put it, a vote for Trump is a vote for sending him away. I didn't myself expect Trump to win when I first pitched this story. I saw it as an unlikely love story and a way to humanize undocumented immigrants like Javi and it's still that story. Um, but now with Trump at the helm, Javi and Gabby's story is an even more important one to tell. Trump, remember, built his base, but on a base of support by villainizing black and brown bodies, immigrants, people like Javi. He silenced their voices. He erased the individuals from these groups. Then that's the context that the story sits in in a time, or rather a lifetime, where both Gabby and Javi have been made to feel ashamed of their identities, they came together and helped each other to feel loved and valued. And then, of course, there's some classic This American Life tension, uh, namely, what will happen to Gabby and Javi after January 27th? So I personally see this going three different ways. The first is that it's kind of a slow burn, which I'll admit is kind of the least satisfying one. This will be Javi's fifth hearing on January 27th, and it won't be the first time that the decision has been pushed back. But how long can Gabby and Javi sustain their relationship in this process-driven limbo that they've been in? Actually, they've broken up once before. Javi's depression over being labeled more or less a worthless non-citizen, of not being able to get a job or do much of anything else besides just dwelling on the next court date, really took a toll on him and Gabby. How sustainable is their relationship in this kind of future? The second, and this is perhaps the most likely outcome, is that the judge does decide that Javi should be deported. What happens to Gabby and Javi then? Gabby and Javi actually have talked about marriage, but they've also talked about wanting to marry on their own terms. Javi, he tells Gabby that he wants to better himself and be able to support her before they even consider getting engaged, but is that just what Gabby wants to hear? Has Gabby really shed all of her family, again, her Christian Republican anti-immigration family? Rachel, we got to wrap it up. Oh, okay, beliefs and biases. Um, enough to believe him when he says that he, he's marrying her because he ultimately loves her. And then the third is allowing Javi to stay in the United States, which is perhaps the most interesting one, even though it doesn't seem that. Um, is it true love really keeping them together after all these years? Or is this this imaginable, unimaginable, uncomfortable, not spoken of thing that has kept them together that is now gonna go away after Javi's allowed to stay. And once it's gone, what will happen to them? Okay, thank you, Rachel.
So now, Stephanie and Rachel, you guys get to chat, and other uh, judges, please also feel free to jump in as well. Um, okay, so this is a little bit of a tricky subject, I feel mm -hmm. like, because it's, whereas, like, it's important, and it's, and you're totally right in that it's important now, particularly because so many people are facing um, deportation under Trump, it's also sort of a familiar story. And you did a really great job with setting up the stakes. I really liked your first line, like this is a love story. You, your writing is clearly great. Um, but it's also, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of two similar stories that we've done. Miki did um, follow a bunch of guys who spent their entire lives in the United States um, and their new lives in Mexico post-deportation. And I'm thinking of Anne Hepperman did the story of a relationship that was surviving over the border with a woman who lived in, I think, Juarez. Or, or no, her husband lived yeah, in Juarez. They both lived in Juarez, and yeah, then she yeah. commuted to work, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think it's a little bit, what, like, what does this bring to the table that's really new? Like, what you were saying at the end about how much they love each other, how and how much is it like her wanting to save him? Like if I had heard some really compelling tape from her going to a, in a really honest, like sort of scary place of like, right. how much do I really want to marry him for the right reasons versus like problematic reasons that may not that may be more involved in like I don't know politics mm -hmm. than love. Like that might have been something maybe um but um i'm not i'm not sure what that would be like i at, at this point i think part of me is more interested in hearing about the conversations with their families mm -hmm. than their their love affair in terms of people who have people who have people close to them who are facing deportation but still voted for trump mm -hmm. and like I'm more interested sort of in Javi's relationship with those family members who were theoretically rooting against him than his relationship with his girlfriend, um, who, which I think is sort of like a more familiar um, narrative to me. And then, and then I guess I will say this, this last thing of like, I've had this conversation with Jonathan Menhivar a lot at work where I love hearing minority voices on air. I love hearing, you know, stories from other cultures, but there is something about like how, we get a lot of pitches that are when there are Latino voices, they are, the same thing they, are they are involved in stories about immigration. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be able to put Latino voices on air that have them not facing deportation and yeah. have them having their own conflicts and um, um, joys and whatever in their lives that are just universal, more universal, I guess, as much as I see yeah. the the value in, in these stories. I, I think that sometimes they, they run the risk of perpetuating stereotype, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I think that we'd probably pass on this one for mm -hmm. now. Um, that being said, like, 
again, I very much appreciate the writing, the setup. This, you have obviously a good sense of stakes. Um, it's just, I think, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think it's not quite right for us right now. Yeah. But thank you. No, thank you. Does anyone have any questions for Stephanie or Rachel? Yeah? <laughs> um, so, one thing that I'm wondering is that there's this sort of razor's edge in the story, uh, which is the judge. Mm -hmm. And like Trump looms over everything, but mm -hmm. really it's, it's, you know, Trump really, as you said, is just what like makes it feel pressing. Right. But this is a story about a judge and, and everything that Stephanie was saying, those are feelings I had too. Mm -hmm. um, like there's a familiarity and I remember those other TAL stories and, Somebody recently pitched me actually kind of a similar story, and I, I was like, you know, it, it has to be really different in the particulars and then really subvert the expectations of like these kinds of stories about a person being deported to a country they never, they don't know. But one thing I'm wondering is like on what basis will the judge decide? Do we know who the judge is? What is the calculation? Is it possible to talk to the judge? Is it interesting? Is the judge interesting? I, it, it's just like, I'm a little fuzzy on what actually this guy did and mm. why he was held. Um, yeah. Know, mostly because yeah. I have a bad attention span, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, I'm just curious like, if that, if like the actual yeah. mechanics of this might be interesting or surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and can I, can I jump in? I, I, I was actually also curious about the, like, you kind of glossed over, I don't think you said what he did, land him in no, jail. I didn't. And also it was, um, they met while he was in jail? Like, was she like a, she was like a social worker or something? Yeah, she, she just was I mean, like that's a... that's kind of... She I was mean, a volunteer. She's a volunteer and, and like is dating an yeah. inmate. And, and like, what is, I mean, piece. does her mom know, like parents know about that they're no. dating? Right, so it's like, I mean, I mean, it's, yeah, so you're, you're the daughter's dating, dating a... <laughs> an undocumented immigrant who's in jail is right. Um, that's I don't know. That left out to me a little bit, and it'd be interesting to know if. I mean, I don't work for this American Life, but I think like um, I, just, I I find myself curious about like those the parents if they didn't yeah. know. But I don't know. I think that was something I was really curious about too, and would be something I'd pursue. But and I think you know that's another thing about if I can make like a. State about pitch, statement about pitches in general mm -hmm. is um, like talking to as many people around the story as possible mm -hmm. um, because you know that's the number one thing that I tell people when they pitch me things is go back and find your real talkers or your right. better talkers and like make sure that you know everybody's thoughts on this because um, I think yeah like right now I think that part of it is I don't I think the tape is not like stunning right. mm -hmm. and it. it they're not really saying anything that was super surprising to me. And if you had had some of that from the family, like maybe yeah. there would be something there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just think that the interesting part about this is the fact that she's dating someone who's in jail. Like yeah. that, who, who's heard a story about that before? Like that, does that even happen? Like that's a, that is interesting to me in the same way that it's interesting to hear a story about someone who has a baby in jail. Like it happens, but we don't hear about it very often and right. they can make really good stories. And I wonder whether like there's a totally different track that one could go with a story like this that could focus on that. Yeah. As PJ says, you know, take a pitch and then build upon it if it's broken, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Maybe there's some kernels in here. Yeah, is that the idea? I, 
I, I, I, them as talkers. That, that's, I would be really concerned about them as talkers. If about I what? Them as talkers, their ability oh. to talk. They're, they're, Gabby and Javi's? Yes. Mm. I mean, that one tape cut of Gabby was all right, but Javi's, I, I don't think he's very particularly strong talk, from what mm -hmm. I've heard. Well, I actually didn't have as much access to Javi, so I didn't really get to talk to him as much. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, it was a five-minute conversation that we had, and he definitely was shyer. I mean, yeah, so Gabby herself was a good talker. Great. So. Let's, all right. uh, thank you to Rachel. Thank you. Ali Sulopuisto. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ali is an independent producer and freelance journalist from Helsinki, Finland. He covers technology and culture, and especially the overlap of the two. He will be pitching to Tim Howard. Tim is the executive producer of Reply All. He used to be our colleague at WNYC. Uh, in his free time, he writes and records music under the name Soltero, and is finishing up a record now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ollie, we are going All right. to put, hold on, hold on. Let me nice to meet you, Ollie. Nice to meet you as well. Go. I'm very nervous. <laughs> All right. Um, so there's this guy called Julius Kivimäki. Like, the name probably doesn't say much to you, but he's Finnish. He's a computer hacker. He's 19 years old. He's like half my age. Um, and he's not the, you know, the petty kind of irritating hacker kind of type, he's actually done some serious stuff. Um, he's a member of the Lizard Squad, and like, yeah, I know the name is ridiculous, but here's a bunch of things that they've done. So uh, uh, at Christmas 2014, they took down the PlayStation and Xbox, Xbox multiplayer networks, and uh, they've done, you know, similar stuff. They've got a service that you can rent to, you know, just kill computers on the internet. Um, there was also this one bomb that, that they called in, and an airplane had to land a couple of years back. So, you know, he's done nasty stuff. And uh, Julius, the 19-year-old Finnish guy, I mean, uh, he's been convicted of these crimes. Uh, he's been convicted of uh, hacking into 50,000 computers, and they, uh, they hijacked MIT's emails one day. Um, and then they've, you know, sent police SWAT teams at, at various locations. I mean, I know that Tim knows what SWATting is because that was episode 15 of Reply All <laughs> and really one. And uh, so the reason I'm talking about this Kivimäki fellow here is that uh, I wrote about him for a Finnish magazine, like a lengthy magazine feature that came out earlier this year. And uh, I thought that, you know, maybe there's something that would be fitting for a Reply All story in here. Like... What would it be? And uh, so the story came out half a year ago, and a couple of months back, Kivimäki, I mean, we've sort of kept in touch in a way. Uh, he approached me, he sent me a message. We we're chatting on IRC, which is like a text-based uh, chat thing. And I thought that, well, now I have access to him again. And, you know, would there, be, would there be any possibility of maybe, you know, doing another story on you? And uh, he didn't say no, but he also kind of started acting coy and he didn't reply like, for several days and things like that. So then I thought that, well, I mean, what can I do? I mean, because I kind of, in a, in a weird way, I mean, I know that he's convicted. I know that he seems kind of psychotic in a way, like he doesn't care. Like he laughs things off. He tells that he's done terrible shit and then he just says that, yeah, nobody really cares. And maybe it's because, 
I mean, I, I've spent more than one night staring at a computer screen myself when I was younger, even now sometimes, even though I shouldn't. So I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I, maybe I understand something about him. But since he wasn't answering, I thought that, you know, I'll go talk to his family, because I didn't get to do that for the magazine story. And uh, I had his father's address. Uh, tried calling him, the dad. The dad didn't pick up, didn't return my calls either. So uh, I, I had an address, I had my recording kit. Uh, I thought that, well, I'm just gonna go see and what's, what's gonna happen there. So uh, this was a week ago. Uh, I, I hopped on a bus, I, I drove to Espo. It's a small town, well, not a small town, but you know, basically think New Jersey, but with more snow, fewer people more abandoned ex-Nokia buildings, that kind of place. Um, I got in the building uh, and uh, knocked on the door and a woman opened the door. And uh, she, uh, I mean, she, she was uh, Julius's father's new partner because the parents had divorced. And she kind of hit behind the door instantly and was really like acting nervous and uh, I'll, I'll play a bit of tape now. It's, you know, it's in a hallway so it's echoey. It's also in Finnish, which means that you won't understand what she's saying, but hopefully there are some things about her way of speaking that you'll catch, and I'll you know, provide a translation afterwards. Moi, mä oon toimittaja Olli Sulopuisto. Onks tota Julius Himas? Mä en todellakaan mä haluan tänne sitten soittaa okay. okay, tätä asiaa. Hän on niinku sässinyt omat asiansa ja... Haluaisin mun yhteystiedot ihan siltä tavalla, että jos sulle tulee se siellä, ei saa ottaa. Joo. Se ei ole mitään julkista sanottavaa. Joo, joo, ei, ei mun tarvitaan nyt sen takia, että jos haluat valmistaa, siis että mä en tee mitään semmoista. Mä siis kirjoitin hänestä aikaisemmin joo. jutun. Joo, mä tiesin, se on niinku haluaa. Siis, Meillä ihan... menee työt ja muut, jos on niinku. Kiitos. and that's pretty much all the tape that I got out of her. Um, so what she's saying is that I don't want to get involved in this. Uh, Julius has made a mess of his own life. Mm, I, I don't want to talk to the press. And uh, near the end where she's like breathing heavily, she's saying that, you know, we're gonna, we'll lose our jobs and, and things like that. And then she pretty much said thanks and took my business card and uh, shut the door in my face. Uh, which was the point that made me think that uh, this might be the story. Like, instead of talking about Julius, this, you know, like, out-of-bounds young hacker guy who says that, you know, these are all... It's, it's, nobody got hurt doing anything that he did. Like, and he said that his dad really didn't care about the sentence because he got only probation and so on and so on. But, like, just talking to that woman made me feel that, yeah, probably people have gotten hurt. Like, the people in his wake people around him, his friends, his family, uh, the people he's been harassing. I mean, that might be a more interesting story than this one, one guy, this 19-year-old guy. And um, I mean, like I said, I didn't get to talk to the dad. Uh, but I, two minutes. Yeah. But I know that a couple of years back, so the dad did a very dad thing. He sent an email to a prominent Finnish uh, cybersecurity researcher. And the email basically said that, hi, my teenage son, spends a lot of time in front of his computer, should I be worried about it? And the, the uh, cybersecurity researcher replied, he, he invited Julius over to you know, see the company, meet the people working there, basically saying that, 
you could be dealing with these kinds of things that you're doing now, but you'd be on the right side of the law. Like, you don't have to do it. And apparently, the uh, message didn't take. Like, that's what, that's what the researcher told me even back then. He felt that Julius wasn't just, you know, interested in doing that. And um, other people who've been involved that have stakes in this, uh, there's this one guy called Blair Strader. He's a 22-year-old 22 uh, who lives in Oswego, Illinois, and he's, he was kind of moving in the same circles as Kivi Mackey, and he's been on the receiving end of, of Julius's tricks, though maybe I shouldn't call them tricks. Like, uh, he's had, Julius had, has, has had a pizza ordered over to Blair's place, and uh, their electricity cut, and their internet access cut off, and one time there was a truck dump full of gravel that was dumped onto their front porch. Apparently that was funny, according to Julius, and yeah, and they've been swatted of course, several times as well. I mean, I've heard the 9-11 tapes and the uh, Blair answering the phone is kind of confused when the uh, 911 operator, you know, talks to him about suicide and, and murder threats and things like that. And uh, then Julius has some colleagues of his own from the uh, hacker circles around the world. Not many, friend, not many friends in Finland is what he says, but I mean, these are the people I'm interested in. I, and this, I think, like, would be the story for me. Like, what happens to the people around him, the, the fallout the surroundings. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Cool. Thank so I like your impulse to um, not necessarily be wanting to just tell a story about Yuli because as you started talking about him, you know, I was like, okay, well, maybe this is going to go to, like, a really absurd, delightful place. I, I hear the words <laughs> lizard squad, and I think, you know. But, but I also sort of, like, something in me just kind of often shuts off when I hear stories about hackers because often the stakes are kind of low. Mm -hmm. um, or it's just, like, here's a thing that happened, but I don't. I don't know. And then another thing happened. And, and then another thing happened. Yeah. And guess what? They're assholes. And, <laughs> and then, like, so what I wanted to know is, like, oh, does he have, like, some really interesting, surprising agenda? It sounds like he doesn't, and he's maybe just an asshole who just wants to... Yeah, that would be, like, pretty chaos. much my assessment after spending yeah. time with him. And, and reading the chat logs, like, he's 19, he's a kid, he likes to travel the world, you know, use those stolen credit cards. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like he's not putting very much thought into it and he's just not worrying about his future either. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I hold out hope that there, there's something funny uh, to think that he, he's like incorrigible, but I, I do hold out hope that maybe there's something complicated in him. Mm. I, I, but yeah, I think for me and probably everybody in the room, like the moment that I, I, I sort of um, woke up to the possibility of, of something different it was just to hear the tape in a, in a hallway in a conversation. Now, that is still so premature, like that still has yet to yield any, it gestures at something that I find intriguing, which like I could be very interested in a story where you have a hacker in the middle who's an asshole, he's mm. like your little junior varsity Kaiser Soze, and <laughs> he's never gonna give you anything. You'll meet him, you'll dislike him, and that's not really satisfying to do a story about somebody who just doesn't have reflection, um, or the more you know about them, the less you like them. Yeah. But if the dad is an amazing talker, and I don't care about the language barrier, if the dad is like an amazing talker and expressive, or if anybody close to Yuli mm. 
um, is not only an amazing talker, but it, if you start to sense a real, if there's like a real grief in there, like I don't race after feelings of grief in my stories, but like, you know, if there, if there is like a real crazy tension in there where somebody, I don't know if there are strides that these people have gone to to try to, like it was interesting that the dad reached out to the authorities yeah. about his son. That yeah. is intriguing. It, it feels to me like the thing that you really need is, is, is casting, but more than that is just finding out if anything interesting has actually in fact happened as people mm. try to correct him. If there's anything great in the relationship between Yuli and anybody close to him who can yeah. be very open to you. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, like, what questions do you have? About this story? About anything in it? About anything. Well, I mean, I had like two possible scenarios. One of them was that because I don't know if Julius will actually give me tape. Like, I've talked to him earlier, and I have the tapes, but those wouldn't make... If Yuli will, you said? Julius, but... Sorry. Well, what's the guy's name? Julius. Julius. Uh, so, Julius. But, like, you know, finish names, just mangle them. It doesn't really matter. Julius. So, you don't know if he'll give you tape? Yeah, because he hasn't told me to basically bugger off, either. He's kind of open, but he's, like, it's doing, he's doing it on his own terms. So then I started thinking that, well, I gotta write around him, basically. Like, if he's not giving me tape, then he's not giving me tape, and I gotta do something else about it. And that's kind of where the idea popped up. But obviously, yeah, I would, I mean, like I said, I, I, I feel for the guy somehow. I know that he's kind of one-dimensional in this sense, that there's not a really surprising turn, probably, in him alone. It's the people around him. So that's, that's one thing that I'm wondering about. Like, what would be the surprising turn in a story like this. Although honestly, like there's not that many people in the world who, if you got to know them better, you wouldn't discover complexity. Mm. And I imagine that we have not discovered any complexity in him. I, I am a little confused about like, has he, like th these things that he's done, let me see, I wrote a yeah, yeah. bomb threat. Like some of them just seem kind of low stakes and funny. Like, yeah. And that's possibly because I have like an incredibly low knowledge of all things internet. But no, like but that's the, the thing. I mean, some of those are just trivial. Yeah. And some of them aren't. Yeah. He's done both. And has he gone to, he went to jail or he just only he was, got probation? So the thing is that he was underage when he committed those crimes. So that's why he didn't do jail time. So I got a probation. Like, basically the prosecutor said that had he been 18 when he committed those, he'd be, you know, he'd be in jail right now. What do you like? What do you think the biggest fear that the um, dad or any other was it the grandmother? I, I'm curious what their biggest fears are. Like, is is he? I don't know a lot about hacking in Finland hmm. either. Um, I'm surprised. But I don't know how uh, either about how they 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 overlap. And I, I'm curious. Like, is there? You know, I was recently in Romania mm -hmm. and everybody there is like, come for the hacking. Right. Is is <laughs> is that like? Um, is that? Is there like, uh, I don't know, is there some sort of evil cabal of hackers in, in Finland that Yuli might graduate to if they can't get him off of this track that he's on? Or? Uh, I mean, there are some, but I think that he's looking at international circles in a way. Like the, the people that were in the same hacking groups as him were mostly European, both Eastern European and, and Brits and Irish people, because these are the names that came up in the court documents. So I think that he's, he's not that fond of Finland. Like, he travels a lot. I don't know, like, how he pays for that because he was really circumspect about that. 
as well. He's been in Hong Kong and Las Vegas and Amsterdam and Prague and like several places. And, and he said that the people, like they rent a house for a couple of months and he'll meet with people he knows online, but those people aren't Finns. They're people from all around mm -hmm. the world. You know, um, I, I think I was just told that we're going to go to questions from the, the, mm. the audience, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I do have like five more thoughts, but I can talk to you yeah, yeah. after. Sure. I have a lot of questions. All so right. somebody Thanks. had a question? Please. Or, or I guess I'm saying, does anybody have a question? Because if you don't, then... It, it felt like in your pitch, you um, spent a lot of time talking about how you got to what you thought was the story. And I was wondering mm. if you expect to get pitches like that where, where the person pitching is letting you in so much to the process of tracking down the story. Well, I mean, that, um, we love to do that at Reply All. Um, and I mean, <laughs> sometimes that can mask not having a story, telling the process <laughs> of your story. But also, many of our best stories, there's not really a story. It's just a process of us not knowing how to report, and it can be fun. <laughs> but um, I uh, love that moment, and I love the promise that I feel in it, where I like the guidance from the reporter, because like, if you had just come up here and said, here's this guy who's done all this shit, here's all the things he's done, mm. and he's 19, that's crazy. I just, you know, I, I don't know, I wouldn't care. But there, it's nice to feel you wondering about something and directing our attention, mm. um, and it feels promising to think that you might keep going until you find the thing that you haven't found yet, but yeah. the thing that's really, wrenching that really subverts our expectations like that is or hilarious I, that would be yeah great, that would be so know? i mean i'd love it to turn out that way yeah i would love to think that this feels like a tragic story of a family who can't keep the son from being a total scary international hacker and then you actually end up discovering um something about balloons but so i i i, I love the um i yeah personally like i love it when people put themselves in a pitch especially if they put their, the questions that they truly feel and not just the questions that they think they're, I don't know, it's, it's hard to identify a question that you truly feel and, um, and compared to like a kind of perfunctory question that you think the story might be kind of asking. And so like, obviously Ali seems to, to, to have that instinct, which is very exciting. Could the two of you um, from 99PI and This Married yeah. Life answer that question? Because I feel like the answer to that question can vary so much show to show. Reply all being like Sorry, a show. What was the question? What was which question? <laughs> um, about how much you want to hear about the report. You put, he put himself in the pitch, uh -huh. his process of going yeah, through finding Kind of going meta there. If it's yeah. really good, um, then yes. But generally, no. Um, our stories, we have, I mean, we, we have a running joke, you know, nothing personal um, at our show, <laughs> sort of our mandate. Um, if there's, if, that said though, I will say that if you have a particular attachment to something because of the town you live in or your personal history, um, it can make the difference. Like, um, so like Andrew Norton here is walking around, I think he's in the back. Um, he did a great story about um, Yuppie, the, the mascot of the, um, I'm gonna screw it up, the Montreal Expos and now the Canadians. And, his, and he has this whole story about his dad. Um, and that, and, and that, that like, yeah, that made me care about Yuppie. Um, and uh, and so, so if it's good, yeah, sure. 
We very much want to know why you're interested in it because like the driving force is like what is your question? What is the thing that you want to learn? What is the thing you want to get at? And why are you the person to do this story, right? If you if you have a specific question and, and a, a motivation towards it, then obviously you are the better person to do it than to just like, I don't know, buy it from you or whatever, you know, or to go to somebody else who's who does want to do that topic but actually has like a real more burning, motivating question. Um, I think that the thing that was actually surprising hearing you talk about that um, and knowing Reply All, now I'm like, yeah, you guys do do that. You have like this mystery show, like mystery, like we're detectives, we're sleuths, we're going to figure it out and it doesn't matter if we and don't have... And there'll be have... balloons in the end. <laughs> <laughs> like we would never do that because we would, <laughs> we would right. want a, like to be certain that there is a story there. And like for us, it is not about the journey. It is about like, I want to know what the ending is before I begin. Yeah, we're actually, this is, to say this is to perhaps encourage an ocean of unformed pitches, <laughs> um, which we don't want. But we love to go fishing if we feel like there's a feeling that we can discover in the story or there's a place like, just for me, and this is just like this, you, you have this innate advantage with this pitch, which is that I don't know anything about Helsinki. And unfortunately the pitch doesn't seem to be about Helsinki. No, But if really. it were, God, I would be, like just to discover something new in the world, you know. Um, but that's also really hard because you don't mm. want to go, you don't want to keep going down the road and going down the road fishing, because that's a hard way to fish. But that's just like... Yeah, prefer yeah, a lake. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Are all you right. guys all set? Thank you so much. Thank you. Ali, thank you. Jim, thank you so much. All right. So we have one more pitch for you all today, and it's coming from Julia Botero. She's walking up. And we're going to do a quick little A-B switcheroo here. Um, Julia started making radio at the SALT Institute, and she has interned at Studio 360, contributed stories to WWOZ and WWNO in New Orleans. And she's also worked for ATC and Morning Edition, and now works as a reporter covering the military and farming for North Country Public Radio, among lots of other things. I'm really intimidated. <laughs> and that's Sam Greenspan, who Julia is pitching to. As we said, he's the managing producer of 99% Invisible. He joined 99% Invisible when it was still produced out of Roman's backyard. That's right. Where did you work? In a shed. <laughs> we, we called it the Radio Shack. <laughs> he was a staff producer at NPR, where he helped pilot the TED Radio Hour uh, before that and reported for national and regional public radio. And I'm not Katie Mingle, yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Surprise edition. Hi, Sam. Hi. <laughs> How are you? So I'm going to stand up for a second. I like okay. to sit down, but um, I don't know if you've guys seen, have seen these before. Um, raise your hand if you've never seen this before. Okay. Hi. Okay. I'm going to sit down. <laughs> so, um, so this is a piece of cardboard. It's shaped like a pine tree. It smells, this one smells like black ice, which is a scent. It's like kind of like axe, uh, man odor smell. Um, it's meant to hang from the rear view mirror of your car. A company called Car Freshener makes them, and they call them little trees. This is the packaging that you can find them in. Also, you've probably seen them. They're in movies, commercials. You see them in taxi cabs around New York City. 
Um, maybe if you like get your car towed and you go pick it up, um, you'll see one of those like when you pick them up in your car. Um, so there's one town in upstate New York where you see them everywhere. They're on all these cars, they're in like elevators and office buildings, they're in kitchens. And um, the town is called Watertown. It's on the border of Canada, it's where I live. Um, and it's also the home of Car Freshener Corporation. <laughs> so this company has a lot of clout. Um, it employs 300 people out of a population of 25,000. It's one of the, like, the only factory jobs that you can get in this town. It's a post-industrial town. Um, and to give you an example of how much clout this company has, there is a slaughterhouse that wanted to move in next door. And the company, Car Freshener, freaked out. And there were, they said they were very concerned that the, that the slaughterhouse would jeopardize their aroma-creating process and their smells of their air fresheners. So they threatened to leave the town if the slaughterhouse moved in. Town leaders freaked out and um, nixed the slaughterhouse. So I drive by this corporation every day. It's kind of a fortress. I'm just curious about it. But um, what this really, this story is about is that this little tree design, it might seem harmless and, ins and insignificant and kind of funny, but they've actually, it's like wreaked havoc in a lot of people's lives, and mostly in um, lives of designers and uh, entrepreneurs, artists, and I'm sort of fascinated by like how something so silly um, is actually backed by like a pretty powerful force. So the story of how this little tree design came to be it was created by a chemist named Julius Simon. Uh, he fled the Nazis in Germany, moved to Canada, uh, studied aroma pine scents in a cabin in the woods, <laughs> and started creating these aromas. He wanted to turn this and create a new life for himself and uh, you know, make money, and so he moved to Watertown to start a business. Story goes that he spoke with the milkman, and the milkman was complaining that his truck smelled like spoiled milk. So Julius was like, well, I'll help you. And he created a cardboard thing um, that uh, he soaked in his aroma pine, aroma thing, like liquid, um, and hung it up in this guy's car. It was the 1950s. That design was a pinup woman. Mm. And it was actually really successful. But after a while, he was like, Julius was like, well, this makes no sense because this like, pinup woman smells like a pine tree. <laughs> <laughs> So then he created the design that like, we all know right now. So I'm not sure why it became such a hit, but it did. These are like, really cheap. They're like, really easy to, to like, put in your car. Um, and like, Julius had like, no problem having them like, show up in movies and commercials and like, whatever. They were like, everywhere. And then like, in the 80s, uh, this was in the movie The Repo Man. And um, Julius was really happy that it was in Repo Man and he like, sent the director, like a whole box of little trees, and was like, thank you, you're the best, awesome. So like, that's kind of like maybe why they became so iconic over time. But things have changed since Julius has died, he's you know, passed on, his son owns the company now. And his son is very different. His son has made it his mission to fiercely defend mm -hmm. the design. Like the whole packaging, the shape, even the name car freshener is trademarked, so anyone who makes any kind of thing for, to like make your car smell better, they cannot call their product car freshener or they will get sued. And um, it's hard for the company because 
this thing has, this shape has been so um, iconic it's everywhere. People think it's in the public domain, but it's not. It's like a trademarked thing. So um, Carfeshner is very busy. Its litigation site's very busy. Um, it's, uh, yeah, so like they've even like sued a nonprofit that helps the homeless who was giving away wooden trees that smelled like pine. Um, but you could like hang them from your rear view mirror and that was like too confusing according to the car freshener and they're like, you're ripping us off. So they got sued. They've sued um, like Old Navy, Getty Images, Johnson & Johnson, Glade for making like a plug-in Christmas tree that smelled. Um, and they pretty much win every suit. Because uh, like most don't like fight too hard, you know. Um, so enter Dale Ditweiler. He's an Austin-based artist who used to own the company Corndog Cards and Novelties, which is a funny <laughs> greeting cards business. And so here is Dale. I mean, my idea of a greeting card is when Conan O'Brien comes on and, and has like the greeting cards we'd like to see, you know, like heard you had an abortion, you know, the, um, you know, I heard you were dying, the, you know, happy fucking birthday, kind of just totally off cards that make people laugh, sick people. I'm sorry, I really couldn't hear that. Can you? Okay, so he it's basically, fucking, he's like, that's all I heard. He's a, <laughs> two minutes, Julia. Okay, so, um, so Dale fought this, in, so basically he made a glow-in-the-dark scratch-and-sniff greeting card in the shape of uh, one of these uh, little trees, and he sold them at Urban Outfitters. They became really popular. Carfisher found this and sued Dale. Dale, instead of like just stopping, he said, I can fight this because this is parody. This is in fair use. I can do it. He went for it. He could have won, but he, um, basically litigation tied him up and he like lost all his money. So um, he, so out of the settlement of the business, he had to um, go, he had to stop doing business. So close his business. He um, had to like burn the, burn the cards and like send photos to Car Freshener of him like destroying the property. <laughs> and he had to spend, and he gave like, he had to pay a hundred bucks. So, and, but the lawyer felt bad and like dropped his legal fees, right? So this pretty much changed Dale's life. Um, he lost his house because um, he lost his job. His marriage almost fell apart and he kind of like lost his sense of identity. Um, and he really hates Car Freshener. <laughs> Because I used to be feel invulnerable. You know, I could make jokes about anything. But after that car freshener thing, all of a sudden, I'm feeling scared. And I used to be one of these people that's like an absolute First Amendment absolutist. You know, I can say any damn thing I want. And I found myself actually advising people to be careful. Um, so to me, it's like kind of fascinating how something like this little tree air freshener that's like friendly, insignificant, um, smells horrible, but, you know, good to some people. Um, how it can go so far into, you know, you know, make sure that its design and packaging is protected forever. And also, Watertown as a place, like, doesn't have a lot going for it. So one of these things this town has is this company. And this company will fight tooth and nail mm -hmm. to protect its design, its legacy, and its presence in this town. Okay. Cool. Julia, thank you. Yeah. All right, Sam, take it away. Um, great. Well, thanks. Um, 
the pitch does something really great at the first, which is to start with a thing that we all know and and smell. I guess I can smell from here. Um, so that's that's like clutch for us. Um, so that's good. Um, and it and, and I like that you get into <clears throat> telling us. You know, that we get into the history. There's this charming guy. We have another joke at the story. Like it has to involve something that came out of World War II. Um, <laughs> uh, not really, but that kind of happens a lot. Because uh, everything came out of World War II, um, and and so then you have this guy, and then you have this kind of shift in these characters. Um, that's all intriguing. Um, so basically, this is an IP story. This is like an intellectual property story. Um, okay, so IP stories are a little hard um, because um, we've done a little bit of them. Um, I just did a story about um, a, a German uh, photo Czech photographer. And before that, um, Mooj Zadie, who did a story for us uh, years ago about the iHeart MY logo, which was in part um, an IP story. Um, and so I'd want to make sure it's, it's fundamentally different than that. Um, what are my questions? Um, so I guess what I'd want to know is, like, have you talked to anyone who's like a little bit removed from this, who's like outside the story, who has some kind of expertise on this and like why? why this IP story is, is a particularly interesting one, or is it like a watershed one or anything like that? I've talked to his lawyer. I haven't talked to like a generic, like a, just a trademark. What did the or, lawyer say? Uh, he was talked about like why he believed that he could fight this and how, you know, under parody and under right. all of that. And also how he thought that the, what, this company had like a very like weak case because what they were protecting was the shape of the tree. Yeah. And how they, he was like, you know, they're going to be really aggressive because of this, like the, their weak case. But like we can, we can fight for it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, you did say that that a lot of these stories, uh, sorry, a lot of these um, lawsuits that the company did they win or did they just not go to court? So this comp so you mean the the other companies that they the, sue? The the really litigious air freshener, car freshener company. They they sue a bunch of people. Um, but do they actually go to court or do they? Yeah. They do go to court. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, really? Yeah, they okay. go to court, right. And they win settlements? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's interesting, because they usually don't go to court. Yeah, they do. So there's, like, the one, the, the homeless uh, nonprofit, they went to court. Really? Yeah. And, like, okay. you can look up, there's, there's some articles in the New York Times about, like, the latest one, huh. which I'm not sure, but, yeah. Okay, that's surprising, because they usually don't go to court. And, I mean, I think I heard a lot of people gasp when you hear it to take the pictures of the, um, of the, of the incinerated merchandise. That's actually, that's actually, like, boilerplate plate practice. And so the fact that that's actually, okay, this is, this is interesting because it, it shows kind of how we think. Um, the fact that like that is a commonplace practice that's like kind of fucked up, right? Um, that's interesting and that, so what the story would need to do is it needs to illuminate something bigger. It helps, you have to, we have to be able to, like my goal for this story would be someone gets in, you know, a cab or someone's car, from a friend's car and they see you know, a, a, a air car freshener thing, and they go, you know, there's a funny story about that that actually, like, <laughs> and then you know this, but, but more, more than just where it came from and how it's made, it, it maps onto how we see the world and how the world is shaped. And so I think with, like, um, if this can become a portal into the way that IP law works um, and some of the weird, like, crazy nuances that, that have adapted with that, um, that can be interesting. I did a, um, I did a, when I was working on the story about, um, this, this Czech photographer, um, I got into some IP stuff and there was this like, um, and trademark and copyright are very different, but there's interesting, I, I came across this, um, there's this tree in Carmel, California that's like a trademarked image 
um, and they'll sue you if you take a picture of it. Um, and um, and like like the like the rock the rock of Gibraltar is like the trademark of of Prudential Bank, um, and they'll sue you if you if you try to use it. And so like and I, I was trying to get that into this story, but I couldn't. And so what I well, I think what it would need would be something to like like map onto a bigger thing. I mean, it, like yeah, this guy Dale. I mean, it sounds like it sucks that he got totally sued out of existence. Um, but hey, nothing personal. Like um, you know, like that's like. That's interesting. I do love that there was, I didn't quite get the corn dog things, but that's great. Um, um, but like, that's like a detail, but that's not the emotional core of the story. In fact, like, in fact, the core, the emotional core of the story is often like, not like weirdly non-emotional because the emotions comes from the reporters and the, um, and, and, and like Roman, the host and you, and it's, and it's your emotions that are kind of propelling the story weirdly, which is very different than, than my, my colleagues to the left here. But um, uh, yeah, does that make sense? Like, I want I want to be able to know. I want this to tell us about about IP law um, more so than I want to know about how they ruined this one guy's life. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. So my question for you would be like, so you would be interested in like my motivation for this? No, story or? no, more like just no. I just mean it's it's just I mean it's your curiosity that's driving the story. Um, and so, and so it needs to, like this little piece of like, you know, um, uh, 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 I'm trying to think, I, think I, I can't think of the word for something that has smell, uh, you know, like a, a, an odorous uh, uh, piece of cardboard. Um, if that can teach us something, if like, if your curiosity about this thing teaches us about like the ways in which IP law are fucked up or about the ways that, um, that uh, just, or just, or yeah. maybe it's not fucked up. Maybe this is just the way that our society has had to evolve so that um, we can have an economy that encourages um, innovation. That's tricky because, I mean, like I'm thinking, I'm immediately thinking of Alex Bloomberg's story and Laura Seidel's story on This American Life about plat forces. I don't remember. Oh, when, when patents fight back. Um, so I want to make sure it was significantly different from that. Okay. Um, because IP has been really, has been covered, and it's a hard story because it's really technical. Um, but if it can get to some of the the other nuances and just sort of the weird, quirky things like like the like like like, like sending pictures of your stuff on fire, um, that that that, that there might be something to that. I'm not sure yet, but there's something there. Let's open it up a little bit. If anyone has particular questions for this particular pitch or just about pitches in general, let's do that. And we're going to have a microphone coming. Can I say something about her thing first? First of all, yeah, I, I, I'm shocked by how much you know about IP. <laughs> <laughs> so I will call you up next time I have a question about have a that. Good lawyer. Um, but I, I'm super into the sun. Like I love how we're taking like 100 yeah, percent different tax on. <laughs> I'm so into the sun, and I'm wondering like. What his like, his his deep motivation is to protect his father's like yeah. tree thing is, mm -hmm. and, and just yeah. and I'm wondering like, did he love his father? Is he like, I must protect my father's cardboard with all I stand for because this is the legacy of our family. This is everything yeah, my father actually, stood right. for. I think because he's like I my dad really was a chump. He just guy. let Repo Man have it. Yeah, <laughs> that was my college tuition. Exactly. Yeah. and then like. And then, and, and do, oh, do they make talk? money off Can of suing people? He, Is that he like went back? He went back and he sued Repo Man. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. You see, I Very like I like this guy more and more. You get oh, this guy. Okay, that's good. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, <laughs> you didn't want it, dude. Um, <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, can Can you get him? 
Yeah. Can we talk? Yeah, you yeah, can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. okay. Good. 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 All right. All right. Let's do some quick questions here. Hi, I just have like a really dumb suggestion, but if you have that detail in the story of him having to burn all those trees, like he has to describe how it smells. <laughs> hey, uh, so I just switched from being like somebody who pitches things to like, I produce for a new show and we're like taking pitches and it's really easy to see like, yes, we want Where do that. you work? I'm at WNYC. It's a new show called Nancy. If you have queer pitches, come find us. Uh, but uh, like, it's easy when it's yes, and it's easy when it's no. But how do you decide, like, this has potential, I'll yeah. put time into it, and like, what's that process look like? Sure, that's a good question. Um, so I, I will never green light anything on my own. Um, so the best I can do is a yellow. Um, but I, I would take it to, um, to our senior editor, Katie Mingle, who I am not, um, and the rest of our team, and we do pitch meetings. We try to do them twice a month. Um, it, it's, it gets crazy, and we do slide. And so if people have pitched to us in the past, I apologize, I'm the one who answers the emails, and um, mea culpa. But, um, but basically, yeah, we sit in a circle and we talk about them, and we try to figure out like, what's, the, what's the thing that, like, that, that, that makes it 90, a 99PI story. Um, so yeah, the short answer is like other, talk, talk to other people, talk to my staff. Other questions? Okay. <laughs> um, you, you, did you want to answer that? It'd be a long rambling answer. It's a tough thing to, to describe, but there's some sort of um, ratio between like, <clears throat> the is, is there fucking incredible tape? Is there a really incredibly well-defined question? I guess that would just be called a yes. Wait, I'm describing the yeses. <laughs> Shit. Um, <clears throat> you know, though, we will, I, I, I think the ones that fall into a gray zone that we do, <coughs> sometimes go after are the ones where we we really aren't sure if they're like we're just sort of exploring like a world and we really like the person that we're exploring that world with and that feels like a promising place to start like their way of describing the world their lens on the world like you know that they're not just going to give you series of information but they're going to have an opinion about it so that's an example of a place where we would maybe say, okay, we'll, we'll venture into this, you know? Even if it's not totally clear that it's gonna yield some benefit. And then occasionally we'll do a tap dance at the end. If it didn't yield that benefit, but we feel like it gestured it towards something, <laughs> and then we'll roll the credits. I would, I would say that yours is a great example of a gray zone pitch where it's basically like, here's something totally new and surprising that I have not heard before, but also like, Where's like I need I need like a sort of some emotional arc significant thing at the end there and um, I I feel like the gray zone pitches for us are all, almost always like can you get this guy if you can get this guy then then we'll pursue it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I feel like this is sort of an internal question, but like at what point in the process of developing a story do you like want to hear from producers like? in uh, and, and trying to figure things out. You mean, you mean the freelancer, or what do you mean? Who, who's uh, yeah, you and who is the producer? Yeah, from, a free, from an outside freelancer. So like... How much, so, how much should a freelancer develop before pitching? Yeah, okay. yeah, and, like, and also, I guess, uh, how much should they think about like building up a pitch that is like the, yeah. like, like the official pitch versus like, like, like when do you want to start talking to people and when are you like, you need to just do some more work before yeah. I, like, this is worth my time. It's a it's a hard it's it's hard because it I mean the 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 unfairness of being a freelancer is you have to front load a lot of work um, to find the talkers and stuff like that I mean um, 
We, our show lives and dies by talkers less than, than other shows. Um, just because we, we traffic more information. Um, so I would say like, ha yeah, have, have an idea, like, like ha have, have an idea fully formed out. You don't need to know, really know how it ends necessarily, or like you don't need to have like a what it all means, but it should be like, it, it should show really quickly that this is gonna reveal, so this is gonna like, like slide away a level of, 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 of the built world and show us something about how something works. And you don't like, pre-interviews are good. Um, I don't, we generally, I, I don't know if we, I, I rarely get tape. Um, actually, I kind of prefer not getting tape um, because I want to build it with you. Um, so, but pre-interviews are great. I just want to know like, is this person a good talker? Can you get them? Have they already said yes? What are they going to say? Um, I generally do uh, pre-interviews when I pitch stories to our show. Really? Uh, yeah, like almost all the time I make a couple calls and find out who the, to the talker is and if they're good or not. Because if they're not, then they're, what's the point? Um, so, and it doesn't take that long, you know? You find a couple people, you talk to them for like 20 minutes a pop. I don't want their whole life story because I want that to be like real and raw and new when I actually talk to them. But I think it's super helpful to, to for you to come to me saying like, I, I want to talk to this specific person and this is what they're like as a talker, especially if we haven't worked with you before. Like that's super kind of critical, I think. Um, and I think that especially like the weirder the, and the, the quirkier and stranger the story, the more it helps. Like the, the less of a story arc you have, I feel like if, if it, the strength of the story is on the talker, then then you can either put it on the strength of the narrative or the strength of the talker, sort of. Um, and I remember, like, you know, last year I wanted to do a story on, like, flaming turkeys. And then I was... I still I, think about that. <laughs> well, I, but like, I didn't know if that was going to be a story. I was just like, flaming turkeys in and of themselves are not a story. But like, firemen who love to blow turkeys up are. So then I had to like find firemen who are really funny about blowing up turkeys. And so like, I definitely made all of those calls before I even pitched it. Right, but that was your story though. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm saying everyone should like sort of take the same tack. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same with us. Um, the idea that like the, the, the weirder the story is, the more we, we want a really clear sense of pre-interviews of talkers with people central to it. Um, and especially if we haven't worked with the person before. Um, you know, there, there are, we have done a couple of stories. We did one that was extremely weird and we took a long time on that we probably wouldn't have done if we hadn't heard a lot of tape, which is what Sam was saying. It's super unfortunate to think that the freelancer is actually gonna do a lot of reporting in advance. Um, but, but she had talked to a central character for a long time. Can you say which one And was? actually it's true for a couple. It's also true for the story that you did. You had some ridiculous tape that totally- You didn't even us. hear it. The, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, I when you tape. When you accepted it, I mean the pitch, right? Maybe? No, 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 oh, I heard the you heard phone it? call. Oh, okay. and that's why I was like, <laughs> oh, Fuck yes. Um, so oh, there, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and this story called The Fever. There's another story we did. Um, I'll, I'll make this quick about, um, I can't remember what it was called, Making Friends, about these things called tulpas. Very weird story. Um, and a great reporter, but we didn't know her, hadn't worked with her, but she had like a year of tape to play us, and there was all of this powerful emotional content in it, and there was like a, a, a personal story at the center of it, which was so great because it's about this world with a crazy idea, um, depending on how you define crazy, about people who, um, you know, have voices that are their kind of 
companions um, inside their heads. But it also had this very, very personal wrenching, wrenching story, and we, we already had a lot of that tape, and it just, I mean, can I, yeah. Can I ask you, Tim, I'm really curious, like what, what did the freelancer do to get you to a place that you wanted to hear that tape, and, that, and how, like, how was it presented so that you listened to it? I don't remember all the steps. I think that maybe she had reached out to maybe Shruti, um, and I think we had like kind of been, we batted around for a while, we were kind of unsure, but then like once, once we really just sat down and listened, like talking about the idea of the story, it was, it was hard, it felt a little bit like, um, here's a quirky thing on the internet, here's a Reddit group, and it felt a little, it, it just sort of like, I don't know, here's a message board kind of story, which w didn't get me incredibly excited. Um, but then it was once I heard that tape, just hearing these phone calls um, and then talking to, I mean, we had a conversation as well with Laura. And then the more we talked with her about her experience reporting this and knowing this woman at the center of the story and discovering complexity and how to feel about this woman at the center of the story, um, that was sort of the tipping point for us. And so tape helped tremendously there. But, you know, it's also, it's possible to do a story. It's very possible to pitch a great story without tape. We've done those as well. Um, they just have yeah. to be, yeah. Sorry guys, we have to jump off here. But afterward, please feel free to come up and, and continue the conversation. We want to thank so much Julia. Thank you Sam for accepting her, for talking with her about her pitch. Thank you so much to our other pitchers, Ollie and Rachel, and to Stephanie and to Tim, and of course to Air for sponsoring this panel. Thank you guys all so much for being here.